Well, welcome, everybody. It's a hike up those steps. I'm not used to that. In Suffolk, it's about two steps to get up here. So I had to do my cardio this week in anticipation. But uh, I'm glad you're all here. I'm happy to be here with my wife, Stephanie, over here. We were holding our son, Raj, during worship. Y'all can pray. He actually went into the nursery. So join with me in prayer that he will actually stay in there. Um, But uh, it is true what David said, what we say so often in Suffolk, whether it's your first, second, or third time here, just an encouragement to you that God has somewhere where he's calling you to put down roots and bear fruit. Any call that you have toward God, any call or purpose you have in life, it's going to intersect with the body of Christ. It's going to intersect with the family of faith. So whether it's here or elsewhere, I'm probably preaching to the choir because y'all are discovering city life going on right now, but find some place to put down roots and bear fruit. It was here some 10 years ago, over 10 years ago now, that I put down roots before Steph and I two years ago moved to the south side to plant the Suffolk campus. So just to give an update, uh, slow, steady growth, fresh faces, fresh people getting involved. Uh, Fred probably walked in there tonight to greeters who he doesn't even know, right? I I hope he was like, do y'all have Starbucks coffee, like asking questions and uh, acting like he was a visitor, do some like spy stuff. But but yeah, we're growing. People in life groups, we're seeing fruit, so it's awesome. Uh, But here's a newsflash. We are not a perfect church because I'm the pastor. <laughs> and if you're here, or maybe you're here for the first time, you're church hopping, church shopping, just this is free. If you're looking for a perfect church, stop now. It will stop being perfect the moment you step in the door, right? The church is full of people, and sometimes because of that, well, all the time, churches are never going to be perfect, right? And I find some consolation when I read the New Testament, and I look at the fact we just planted this church. When you look at the churches that Paul planted, he planted some messy churches, right? Some, some crazy churches. You read like 1 Corinthians, you realize some of the stuff that was going on in that church. And we get most of the New Testament because he was writing letters of correction and direction and encouragement to these churches that he had planted. And again and again and again through these letters and through these encouragements to the church, he encourages them away from division and toward unity. And we see, like my favorite passage in the Bible about unity is in Ephesians 2. And in Ephesians 2.16, it says, Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He wrote to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And then in Galatians 3.28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And I could go on for five minutes. The list could go on and on where Paul writes about unity. It's because Paul realized, it's almost like he realized that mankind has a division problem. And if we look at our current culture, both in the world and in the church, we're still divided among so many lines in the sand that separate our in-group from that out-group and us and them and the good guys and the bad guys. There's just so many lines that divide us. We have a division problem, a division problem that we've had for a long time. And I've had conversations with people multiple times where they've said it's worse than it's ever been. We can get so self-centered and not realize that we're dealing with the same conflicts, just a new context, right? It's all in the Bible. It's been all through history. And I challenged one of them in that moment, like, well, maybe we've just been a part of the predominant majority culture for so long you didn't realize where we were at. And another thing, you look at the fact we can get updates on all the 
conflict, everything that's going down, like in real time on social media, and it becomes sometimes overwhelming. Sometimes it can get, we can get panicked. But whether it's Charlottesville from weeks ago, Ferguson from years ago, the civil rights movement, the women's suffrage movement, all the way through the world wars, we realize that mankind has struggled for unity, to give each human dignity. We realize that mankind has a division problem, that fractured people cause more fracturing, that hurt people hurt people. All the way back to the first family, where the first brothers, one hurt the other, even killed him. But you know what? I love that here's a book, right, the Bible that's battle-tested, been through every season of division, and it still points to the solution. And tonight I want to read from Genesis 4, Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. If you're turning there, if you're new to church, it's the first book, you'll be able to get there fast. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and then after that I'm going to read 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, and I'll have a little bit of both passages, but not the complete up on the screen. But we'll start in Genesis 4, if you could pull that one up, Katie. Shout out to Katie, right? It's like looking up to the hills here. I look up to the balcony from whence my help comes from, but Katie... Long time no see. (laughs) But Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. says, now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. And when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, maybe the first tattoo, right, to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So, After that long passage, I'm going to read from 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. This is Paul writing to Timothy, just writing about what's going to happen in the church, uh, prophesying about what the church will be like in time to come. And he says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. 
They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act righteous, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. (laughs) So with all this word, can I just pray tonight that the Holy Spirit would guide us in this truth. Lord God, we thank you for tonight. God, we thank you for this time to come together and worship. God, I pray that you would teach us something tonight about what worship is. And God, that you would, as it says in Matthew, I believe it's chapter 5, where if we were to come to worship you and we had to be reconciled to our brother, you, you call us to do that, God. So I pray that you would give us tonight a heart for reconciliation, God. And if we already have one, just make it bigger. Lord God, we, we sing so often in the song, God of Miracles, give us a supernatural love. God, we need that. We ask for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So I, I mentioned the news and the fact we see our news and our timeline these days. And uh, we actually were in a summer series about technology, about how it uh, affects our faith and how do we walk out our faith in our current context because technology, it, it changes the way we deal with things and God and people. But one thing we talked about not too long ago is Facebook is now the number one source of news. It's what a majority of people find out what's happening in the world just by being on Facebook and seeing what people are sharing. It sounds crazy, but honestly, if I'm honest, sometimes just scrolling through Twitter, you see stuff that's happening in real time, right? But when I was young, I'm getting old enough now, I can be like, when I was a kid, right? We didn't have Twitter, we didn't have Facebook, my family got the, the Washington Post, and we didn't have the money to get it all throughout the week, we got it on Sundays, right? That's when the coupons were, that's when the comics were, so I don't know what was happening one Sunday, but my brother and I, we were racing out to get the newspaper. I don't know if we were extra excited to read Calvin and Hobbes that day, but most likely, it was just competition. Like, my brother is three years younger than me, but he's six inches taller than me, he's 6'3". So I don't remember what age it was, but he caught me quick in terms of, like, height and girth, right? Just (laughs) things got competitive quickly, especially eating. I don't know how my two sisters survived when my brother and I were just fighting to consume everything. My brother had, like, a a trinity of snacks, pretzels, marshmallows, and peanut butter. If it wasn't in the pantry, it was under his bed because he just eat it at night. I guess that was his secret. If you want to get tall, break six feet, eat those in the middle of the night. But that's that's a rabbit trail. The newspaper. We're running out to get the newspaper, and I get there first. At that age, I was a little more coordinated than my brother, right? I got there first, and my brother got angry. And uh, he picked up a rock. And now my brother's not, again, he was uncoordinated. He's not Tom Brady. He's not a, a major league pitcher, right? But he threw the rock, and I don't know whether you would call it lucky or unlucky, but it sailed probably 20 feet in the air and hit me right here, right? Opened this huge gash, right? Blood everywhere. My parents did not spoil the, or spare the rod or spoil the child that day, right? And that sounds dysfunctional. And I'm sure if we uh, opened up this to a moment of participation, we could waste all my sermon time sharing stories from our seemingly dysfunctional families. And I'm not the victim in this, right? I was the older brother. You best believe I did my share of dysfunctional. I pushed my brother out of a tree once. I headbutted him once and KO'd him, just wanting to see if it actually worked, because I'd seen it in movies. Like, my brother suffered, okay? I'm not a victim here. But things as brothers is competitive. And, and whether it's in family, whether it's in, in your siblings or in marriage, there's, there's friction. And there always will be friction, because we're dedicated and committed to doing life with other people that are still being perfected by God, other sinners who are still working things out by God's grace, But as dysfunctional as your family may seem, again, we look at the Bible and we realize 
I actually got it pretty good, right? The, the first parents of the first family caused the fall of humanity, and their kid murdered their other child, right? I had it pretty good. I got a rock in the side of my head. I got a good relationship with my brother still, so I got it pretty good. But we got to realize reading about Cain and Abel, they are the first born sinners, right? Born sinners, opposite of a winner. Remember when their parents used to eat the tree of life for dinner? That went over your head. Don't worry about it. But when, when Adam and Eve would talk about the good old days, right? When your parents talk about the good old days, your grandparents talk about the good old days, you might roll your eyes a little bit because they're talking about, eh, they used to make stuff that would last more than six months, all that kind of stuff. But when Adam and Eve talked about it, the good old days, I believe Cain and Abel listened because they walked in the garden with God. They had fellowship with God. But because of the curse, life got hard. Childbirth brought pain. Working a harvest would bring toil. So Cain grew up a farmer, and Abel was a rancher. And it says in Genesis 4 that after they'd grown up, they came to God, right? And they wanted to come and give the work of their hands as an offering. Now, Cain, as a farmer, he brought his crops. Abel, as a rancher, he brought from his flocks. And so begins the account of Cain and Abel that we read. And even if you haven't grown up in the church, right, even people outside of the church, they know these names and they know what happened. And I want to pause here because I, Cain gets dissed so easily as this godless man. We love to shake our finger at Cain. We love to look down our nose at Cain. We think we're better than Cain. But he shows in just a couple verses of chapter 4 of Genesis, that he already understands coming to God in worship. Better than a majority of the church today understands coming to God in worship. Cain didn't come in order to spectate. Cain didn't come in order to get fed. Cain didn't come in order to have his needs met. Cain realized that worship starts with sacrifice and giving back to God. And in that, right, when you delight yourself in the Lord, he gives you the desires of your heart. But worship is first and foremost about God, not us. When my worship becomes about my needs and my consumption, it ceases to be worship. Or it's still worship, but I'm just worshiping myself rather than God. See, we not Cain. But we should ask when we come to worship, do I have any anticipation of giving back to God? Of my life, of my dreams, of my identity, of, of my family, of my marriage, of my kids, of my finances, of my time and my talents. Do I expect that I'm going to give back to God? Because he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. That's, that's the heart of worship. So Cain brought a sacrifice. He brought crops. And Abel brought livestock. And Cain was rejected. Abel's was accepted. And I've seen a lot of ink spilled on why was Cain's sacrifice rejected and why was Abel's accepted. Was it about the sacrificial laws? But those hadn't been given yet. Was it uh, because of this or that or the third? I mean, they were bringing offerings. In the Old Testament, often it was your crops. Often it was the work of the harvest. So we look at the accounts later in the Bible that point back to their story, and it becomes crystal clear. It wasn't about what they had in their hands, but it was about what was going on in their hearts. Like in Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says, By faith Abel brought God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. It says in the message version, it was what he believed, not what he brought. That made the difference. And then in 1 John 3, 12, John says, we must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. See, Abel had faith. Cain had unbelief. 
Abel was there for an audience of one. Cain got caught up in, in comparison and jealousy. And God rejects Cain's offering because we can assume it was routine without faith. He was just going through the motions. And when God rejects Cain's offering, he gets angry. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't ask for a redo. He actually just starts fuming, begins to stew. You know, the sting, you might say, well, what's the big deal? Again, if you have a brother or a sibling, the sting is twice as painful. It's not just anybody who's getting accepted while he's being rejected. It's his brother. Okay, there's a competition there. The pull of the comparison trap is, is twice as strong when it's your sibling or your brother, and he's got his own brother being accepted while he's being rejected. And see, when this happens, Cain begins to think that his issue is with his brother. But the issue isn't with his brother. Abel didn't reject Cain's sacrifice. God rejected Cain's sacrifice. Cain's heart issue wasn't with Abel, it was with God. And taking issue with Cain, envy, jealousy, bitterness, they start creeping up in Cain's heart. And when, come on, when jealousy starts creeping up in your heart, you can do three things. You can give it to God, let him deal with it, lay it at the altar. You can internalize it, get depressed, worked up. You can externalize it, act out like Cain did. But I love that God comes to him. It's just God's grace, so evident in, in this passage. He comes to him and he warns him. He says to Cain, why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. In the amplified version, it says, if you do well, believing me and doing what is acceptable and pleasing to me, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, but ignore my instruction, sin crouches at your door. God is saying, in essence, look, your problem is not with your brother. Your problem is with me. Right? What's on the line is your obedience to me, not some competition that you've created with your sibling and your brother. God lets Cain know, hey, hey there's a heart issue here. Sin is creeping at the door. There's a, a potential sin issue, and he urges Cain to deal with it. And how often in our lives do we feel the prick of conviction and, and God shows us, hey, there's something you should deal with here, but we keep it moving and, and go forward anyways and we get on with it. Cain gets on with it. <laughs> it says, it doesn't say how much longer, how much later, but it says that eventually Cain invites Abel out into a field thinking, hey, it's secret, nobody will see it out here, right? And he kills him. And I love again, again God confronts Cain. And again, it's this picture of grace because he doesn't show up uh, just in a rage or confronting uh, Cain for the killing. He, he says, hey, where's your brother? It's like he's giving Cain this open door opportunity to confess, to repent, to, to receive grace. But we know ultimately Cain is sent east of Eden. Genesis 4, 16 says, so Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod east of Eden. Then Cain founded a city which he named after Enoch, his son. So the first city is built by hands. That spilled blood and new sin. And as big as we may continue to build cities and civilization and cultures, we continue to build broken. That's why in our cities, in our civilizations, in our current cultures, we find domestic violence, gang-related killings, serial murders, school shootings, tribal massacres, genocide, war. You watch enough news, you realize there is a darkness in the heart of man. There's something sobering. There's, there's something that's impossible to ignore. I love to talk to people about their worldviews, begin to understand and empathize with where they're coming from. But, man, when somebody can't recognize that there is something wrong with mankind, that there's something wrong in our hearts, I can't hear what you're saying. You know, Steph and I, we just had our seven-year anniversary. 
Y'all can clap because I'm trying to drink some water. <laughs> but anyways, we dropped Raj off at my grandparents in Virginia Beach, and we don't get many dates these days. So we went out and saw uh, Wonder Woman, first time, still in theaters like two years later. That thing came out like the summer of 2015. We finally got to see it. That tells you about our, our movie going at this, at this point in time in our lives. But that movie takes place in World War I. Right, Wonder Woman had been living in the seclusion of this island, and uh, she leaves this kind of sanctuary island to be confronted with the reality of World War I. And in her mind, in this world of, of deities and, and the Greek deities, her mind is if I deal with this god Ares, then all this violence will go away because he's the Greek god of war. And if I just get rid of this god, then there will be peace. People will stop killing each other. They will stop being suffering. But what she finds out is that even that won't work. Even with that, man's violence won't stop. And she's left with the question we're left to ask, which we, which we probably think, and I know I think every time I watch the news, man, why is peace so elusive? And the answer we see from the beginning of the Bible and the first violent murder is it's because all these years later we still do life like Cain did. It's the deception we continue to walk in that our issue in life is a man-to-man issue, maybe a woman-to-woman issue, maybe a woman-to-man issue, but it's, it's me and that person, or us and them. And if we deal with that, then we'll find peace. But Cain bought into the, the lie of the enemy that our issue is primarily with our neighbor or our brother and our sister, and we can deal with our issues and find peace on a man-to-man basis. You know, Wonder Woman kind of had a half right. Because <laughs> she was like, if, if, if she thought, man, our problem is with a God, this God Ares, right? Again, half right. Your problem is with the God, right? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The deep-rooted issue isn't man-to-man and neighbor-to-neighbor. The issue is God-to-man, man-to-God. Because before you're ever a child of God, you are an enemy of God. It says in Romans 5, verses 8 through 10, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That phrase, we were God's enemies, it's a powerful thought. It's a key thought because until we understand that, we'll never understand the true depth and glory of God's grace. And you might hear it say often in our culture, a very tolerant culture, that we're all God's children. It's a comforting thought, a flowery statement but it's not entirely biblical, right? And hear me out. We have, every human being, inherent value, dignity, beauty, and worth because each and every one of us is created in the image of God. It's what's called the imago Dei, right? You are created in the image of God. That person you struggle to honor, have compassion for, created in the image of God. And at a time in our culture when life seems to have less and less value from abortion to the murder rate. I mean, we got to shout that out from the rooftops, right? That each life, every aborted life, every ex-con, every person we disagree with that we tried to dehumanize, that person has worth, value, and dignity because they're created in the image of God. But children of God, those that will inherit eternity, right? John 3.16 that says that God gave his only begotten son, The rest of us become his son or his daughter through adoption. 
There's that beautiful verse in Ephesians 1, 6 about being adopted into the family. But John chapter 1 says, to all who believe and accept him, God gave the right to become children of God. If you have no belief, if you have no subsequent faith, you aren't a child of God, you're a child of wrath. You're a child of the flesh that stands condemned. We were God's enemies. And it's only through Christ that we've been reconciled. You know, in the man-to-man conflict between Cain and Abel, again, we so often throw ourselves into Abel's shoes. But again, we got to throw ourselves not just behind, but in Cain's shoes. Because Cain killed an innocent Abel. Jesus says in the book of Matthew that Abel was a righteous man. Cain killed Abel. We killed an innocent and righteous Jesus. Now, maybe you've never thought about that, but, but essentially the weight of our sin causes Jesus' murder. The same way that Cain killed Abel. It says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered over to death for our sins, for my sins, for your sins. When Jesus died, it was a substitute for our sins. And Cain murdered his brother. Jesus is our brother. It says in Romans 8, he chose them to become like his son. God chose us to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So I can't look at Cain and shake my finger. I need to stand beside him, condemned. All have sinned, right? And sin isn't just some cute word or concept. It's rebellion against the king of kings. It's making yourself his enemy. And again, our true problem that causes division again and again throughout history, it's not first and foremost a man-to-man problem. It is a man-to-God problem. We've operated as mankind under this deception that the problem is with other men or women. So we live divided, pitted against each other. In our culture, you see so often just us and them divisions. In psychological terms, they're, they're in groups, the us, and the out groups, the them. Psychologically, we are just social organisms that seem hardwired to make basic dichotomies about the social world. It's virtually universal among humans. You even see it among some primates where it seems like we're hardwired to divide the world around race, gender, age, nationality. And it's even in like... <laughs> seemingly childish things. Dunkin' Donuts coffee versus Starbucks coffee. There's like a civil war going on in Suffolk about Dunkin' Donuts versus Starbucks. You might think Starbucks is the jam, but we got people from Boston that will fight you over that, right? Marvel versus DC Comics. (laughs) Justice League and the Avengers, what's better? You can't like both. Don't even let me get into sport rivalries. You know, there are some cultures where... The hat you wear on your head, it's not about the logo. It's not about the team it represents. You're not representing a team. It just matches your shoes. It matches your shirt. This was me 10 years ago. Anybody here that knew me back then would know I wore a hat everywhere. And it wasn't about the team on the, on the hat. It was because it matched my shoes. It worked with my shirt. I was trying to get it together head to toe. And I remember Steph and I, we were going to Disney World. I believe it was before we got married. And uh, if you've ever been to Magic Kingdom, you ride a ferry into the park. I'm, Sounds funny, not like Tinkerbell. <laughs> you don't ride Tinkerbell in, that'd be cool. But no, I'm talking a ferry that like shuttles cars, shuttles people. You're, you ride a ferry in, and it takes 10 to 15 minutes, right? So you see everybody, they see you. But at the very end, right, as the ferry's opening up, I'm wearing, I should probably give a little back, I'm wearing a, a Red Sox hat. We're good with my shirt, we're good with my shoes. Like I was matching head to toe, and a, a guy just came up to me, just aggressive, right? Talking about some names I'd never heard of. Some things that happened last year that I had no idea what he was talking about. And I looked at Steph, and for two minutes, I had no idea what just happened. I was like, did he, like, confuse me with somebody else? But then I realized, oh, that guy's wearing a Yankees hat. 
I'm wearing a Red Sox hat. And it all came together, right? If I was wearing a Yankees hat, he probably would have dapped me up at the very beginning and we would have talked. I would have had no idea what he was talking about. I could have smiled and nodded my head, right, about what the Yankees did the year before. And it's because, right, I was wearing a Red Sox hat. I love that he waited till like the doors were about to open so he could say his thing and run, right? <laughs> but a uh, total stranger talking beef because of uh, us versus them sporting rivalry. You might laugh, roll your eyes at those examples, but we're all sucked into us and them groups. And it just flows from instinct and survival over the course of humanity, right? There's protection in groups. There's pooled resources in groups. There's, we're social creatures, just the acceptance of being in a group. It, it feeds something in us. But there's also downsides. Simply acting as a member of a group, it changes how people behave. People's thoughts, behaviors, and feelings towards another, it changes when it goes from me and you to us and them. It escalates. There's a more aggressive template for group to group versus one-on-one -on -one interactions. And let me tell you, we spent a week in the, in the summer series about how just social media has taken that and the gloves come off even further. Indecency often follows and in biblical terms, grace goes out the window. And as an adult, our us versus them groupings, it's no longer just Marvel and DC, it's not Nintendo versus Sega Genesis, whatever we divide ourselves in as kids, it's Republican and Democrat, liberal and conservative, black and white, Blue lives, black lives, consistent patterns of us and them in race and in politics and in policy. I mean, politics, you see it so often. It's a divide and conquer strategy. Same with the news, right? So same with the media. Their number one goal isn't to care for us with the truth. It's to make money and division sells, conflict sells. If there's not one, they'll construct one. And it's because of this and this constant uh, cycle of division in our culture where if I stand up here and I say something like white privilege, if I say racism, we kind of flinch, right? If I say black lives matter or blue lives matter, we throw up walls and we kind of retreat to our in-group and we get ready to lob and debate. We're a fractured people that continually fractures itself along lines of us and them. It's man to man or us and them oppositions again and again, and in some of its most escalated cases throughout history, we see that can lead to violence, conflicts, crusades. It can lead to war. We don't just grow up learning how to divide numbers. You learn as you grow older to divide ourselves. Again, there's some positives, but there's many negatives. Not realizing that our chief issue is not man to man, it's, it's man to God. And we grow up learning division in math, and calculus, I didn't even take calculus, I'll get to that later. But uh, you, these math books, how many of you guys have one of those math textbooks where you knew, like, if you struggled, the odd answers were in the back, right? You might have, you might have to kind of fake your work a little bit, but, uh, yeah, you could throw that answer there. And I was not a math person, so let me tell you, I was aware every time. I don't know if anybody could have gotten through their education without realizing, oh, the odd numbers are back there. I believe some of my teachers were just evil. They'd be like, do the, do the even numbers. And he's like, man, really? Anyways. Jesus. Jesus is like the answer, the solution. He's waiting for us to turn to him. He's waiting for us to look to him because as long as I'm looking up to God for my salvation, it is impossible for me to look down on another human being. If I in humility are looking to God for grace, I can't at the same time look at somebody else and look down my nose or get on my high horse and look down at them. I'm like Saul on my knees before Jesus. I can't look down on anybody else from my high horse. Jesus died on the cross, bore the wrath of God in our place in order to reconcile to God a people from every tribe, 
nation, tongue. Again, Ephesians 2, 16. I love this verse. I'm going to read it again. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. Galatians 3, 28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And it's important to recognize that in an overflow of that reconciliation with God, we're called to go out and help reconcile man to God and then reconcile mankind one to another. Now, it's important that we do both, but it's important that we do it in that order. Because until we reconcile with God, we'll never see healing and reconciliation in mankind. Again, math. Not a math guy. Never took a class higher than pre-calc. Kind of ashamed, kind of proud of that, right? <laughs> I was not a math person. When I got to William and Mary, which is like this academic boot camp, I just asked around. I was like, if, if I don't do math, what's a good class for me to take? Turns out there was a class called Math Powered Flight. It was a mix of like geometry and physics. So like I took those classes, I'm good. The teacher was the bomb. He lets you take like an eight and a half by 11 sheet into every test with as much as you wanted to write on there. And I can write real small, I'm an artist, right? So I, I would have half the book on these cheat sheets. And I got to the first day of class and I'll never forget in the front row, right in front of the teacher is Lane Campbell, quarterback of the football team. And I thought, ha, I did good. <laughs> Found the right class to take some math. So when Raj grows up to be smarter than me, <laughs> And he's asking for help with his math homework. I'm going to tap out pretty fast, right? We'll, we'll have to get a tutor because Steph and I both will be like, whatever. But one thing I can handle still, all right, all this time later is fractions, right? And with many fraction problems, you can't find the solution until you find the common denominator. You know, again, we've got a division problem, a problem that we've been trying to find the solution to for centuries among all kinds of lines, race, nationality, gender, classes and alike. And we've been trying to find the solution all the wrong ways, man to man. But again, Jesus is the preeminent one. He reigns over all our differences. He binds us all together. Jesus is the common denominator that allows us to find the solution to all our fracturing and division. We've got a long division problem. We've long been trying to find the answer. And Jesus is like the answer in the back of the book. Like, hey, I am the common denominator. Plug me in and you'll stop going through these cycles again and again and again. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the, the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result? We need to plug Jesus, the common denominator, in. Because once we found him, we find the beginning, at least, to the solution of our problem. You know, until we get reconciliation right with God, we won't get it right around us in the world and mankind. We'll experience the same problems. We might rally around causes and hashtags. We may see a brief respite from some of the issues. We'll catch our breath, and then it'll all start over again. You know, all the systemic issues that we rally against and we should rally against, they come from sin in our own system, our own hearts and our own minds. Again, we might find temporary peace from those, but there will always be a war inside of us that spills over again and again until we reconcile ourselves to God. These systemic issues in our society are worth addressing, but our long division problem will continue to cripple us until we reconcile ourselves with God. Biblically, again, once God reconciles us to him, it's not the end. It's not the end game. He sends us out as ambassadors of reconciliation, as it says in 2 Corinthians. We see the same pattern just in the opposite direction. Reconcile God to man. We're called out to go and reconcile man to man. We aren't called to qualify who deserves the love of Jesus or determine who's dignified enough to be a, a reconciled to him. 
It says God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If that person's on the planet, Jesus died for them, right? That person you struggle to honor, Jesus died for. That person you struggle to have compassion for, Jesus had so much compassion for that he carried a cross for them. Jesus took us versus them, and through the work of the cross, he just defined for his kingdom and for his church a pattern that's no longer us versus them, but us for them. Right? Division replaced by unity, lines in the sand replaced by love, battle lines crossed to embrace our enemy in the love of Christ. Question is, are we walking in it? Because we read 2 Timothy 3, the Bible warns us that many won't walk in reconciliation. I believe we're seeing that today. We see a ministry of retaliation, even in the church, rather than a ministry of reconciliation. Paul was writing Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, talking about the people who would be in the church to come. And in many versions, it writes out one of these words as irreconcilable. Irreconcilable. Paul says it's a sin that will heighten in the last days. That it emerges in one who is unwilling to reconcile unwilling to be at peace with others and unwilling to negotiate a solution to any problem involving a second party. Paul chooses this ancient Greek war term, meaning a refusal to enter into a treaty, to take a posture where no flag of truce is going to be accepted between you and the other party. Even in a stalemate, that person won't lay down their weapon. It's a a man so completely and utterly blinded to the fact that, that his problem isn't man-to-man, not realizing that the heart issue he grapples with, it's like Cain, right? It's this deception that, that the problems we have with God, we can solve man-to-man. And Paul makes it clear to Pastor Timothy that this person will not only keep up the fight, he will also contend that he is acting in accord with the Christian faith, maintaining that his irreconcilability is biblically justifiable. You know, the Pharisees operated like this. All these divisions that they found justified by Scripture, us and them, Jews and Gentiles, insiders and outsiders. You just look at how the temple worked. There were insiders, there were outsiders. <laughs> Gentiles tried to climb the wall. There was a warning on the wall. Hey, we could take your life, right? It's a long problem we've had. And then there's the, the they would so often call people sinners. Like Jesus met with sinners. There was the righteous and sinners, but... Really, there's two kinds of sinners. There's self-aware sinners, whether you've dealt with it and given it to God or not, and there's self-righteous sinners that think, I got this, right, that have never given it over to Jesus. And a famous account of a self-aware sinner is in John chapter 8. It's the woman caught in adultery. I mean, can you imagine? Like, we read through these passages so quickly, like Cain and Abel, John chapter 8 with this woman caught in adultery. Like, it doesn't explain how they caught her. Can you just imagine, though, her cries for mercy, begging, pleading, (laughs) These rocks that they put down at the end of the story, they're not playing with those rocks. Those are rocks that they were going to launch like missiles to murder her, kill her, right? And they don't see a person created in the image of God in that moment. They saw a pawn, right? This riddle that they could put before Jesus. Do you honor the Old Testament law and we kill her, or or do you set her free and stand against it? And in the account, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, Jesus stoops down and writes in the sand, and then eventually he says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. You read this and you realize that Jesus isn't concerned with winning an academic dispute about doctrine. He was looking to save the woman who was broken and outcast. But how often does the church, right, walk in the shoes of the Pharisees? Where we're more concerned with online debates and looking right than reaching the people right in front of us. You know, the fool is concerned with winning talking points. The wise man is 
concerned with winning people. <laughs> the, the, the fool is concerned with looking right. The wise man is concerned with loving right. Being right is not a fruit of the spirit. Love, gentleness, kindness, these are fruits of the spirit. And we so often debate to win arguments rather than winning people. You know, the evangelism in the 21st century in our culture is so often, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'd love to tell you about it. Let's meet for coffee, right? That's our idea of evangelism so often. It's because we bought into this us and them, righteous and sinners mentality of the Pharisees, the man versus man deception that Cain walked in. You know, we hurt other people created in the image of God when we, we throw around phrases like shame on you. And it's not always phrased like that, but it's the idea of shame on you for thinking differently than I do. Shame on you for voting differently than I do. Or, or shame on you for worshiping differently than I do. When we worship a Savior, the very power of his grace is the fact that at the core of his grace is shame off of you, right? Shame off you. Where the religious stand and say, shame on you. The church needs to point to a Savior who says, hey, that shame I remove. Shame off you. It's by the grace of God that his kingdom grows. Not by conquests or, or us versus them, mano a mano. No, it's by the grace of God. And in all our attempts to advance God's kingdom, as we should, again, it doesn't stop with us being reconciled to God. It continues as we try to reconcile man to God and man one to another and build God's kingdom in this way through his grace. And as we do that, we ought to remember a scene at the beginning of Joshua. It's Joshua chapter 5. Verses 13 through 15. You got Joshua called to lead the people that God has called him to lead, to take the land that God has called him to take, right? To go to battle as God specifically called him to do. And so he's being responsible. And before they attack Jericho, he's out doing reconnaissance, he's out scoping out the land. And a man comes before him carrying a sword. So, like a boss, Joshua asks, hey, you, you friend or foe? What he's asking, are you with us or are you with them? And this figure, as many interpret to be God, many theologians do, he says, neither. He says, I'm commander of the Lord's army. He's saying, look, I operate on another level. I'm the ultimate independent. I run things. Look, ditch your personal perspective or political perspective for a kingdom one. The real question is the question, God poses to Joshua through no specific words, but he basically asks, are you for me? <laughs> and at this, Joshua falls on his face and worships. And Joshua says, I am at your command. What do you want your servant to do? Now, many of us, we're not going to go attack any city tomorrow. But in terms of Jesus' wish for his church, for the church, for uh, his prayer for the church. We see in John chapter 17, he says, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Our witness to the world, our ability to glorify God and point to Jesus Christ, it's dependent on our unity. Unity isn't some sideline issue. It is an essential issue. So racism, sexism, classism, these aren't sideline issues. They are central to the gospel. The Bible speaks to these issues. How can we ignore them? But maybe you ask the question, well, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me this week? What does that mean for me moving forward? Well, what's holding you in division? Where we went with this series is, is last week we preached on having a heart of retaliation 
when you buy into us versus them, when you buy into tit for tat, it's, it becomes this heart of retaliation when God calls us to a heart of reconciliation. If you want to do homework, read Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. We see Jesus lay out the pathway for the end of violence. We ask this question, man, why is it so elusive? You look at Matthew chapter 5, Jesus teaches us we need a heart not of retaliation, but of reconciliation. The question is, man, is my perspective one that still sees things politically, divisively, because we have this impulse in our heart, again, that is good at some times, but can be so destructive as well to divide in groups, out groups, us and them, when the Bible says again and again that in the gospel we're all one under the blood of Jesus Christ. Do I realize those people on the news I, I have a hard time having compassion for, those people at work that I have a hard time honoring, that Jesus died for them, or that they're created in the image of God, they have dignity, they have worth, that God wants to reach them. Again, when you look up to God for salvation in humility, it's impossible to look around yourself and look down on other people. May we see that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. May we see those that have found reconciliation through Jesus. May we share it. And may we begin, again, to have this heart of reconciliation instead of a heart of retaliation. You read Matthew chapter 5. Those aren't easy words. Again, it's, I mentioned it. Like, we sing the song, God of Miracles. I know you sing it here. I've seen your set lists, right? It says, we need your supernatural love. Some of this doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit, without God touching us. So I just want tonight, if I could have the worship team come up, let's worship our common denominator. Let's live a life and pursue a life of unity that, that's so powerful as a witness to the world. And again, read Matthew chapter 5, because you can talk about it. Matthew 5 shows how to be about it. But as Joshua as he in that moment where God said, hey, I'm on a whole nother plane. I run things. He bowed before God and he worshiped. Just tonight, can we stand in this place? You know, they're going to come up. They're going to lead us in worship. But, but God, I just pray, Jesus, I pray that wherever in our heart we've bought into our issue chiefly being us and them or me and that person, maybe where there's even unforgiveness that we've been harboring, Lord God, I just pray that you would give us a heart of reconciliation. God, we, we're called ambassadors of reconciliation. You can't really be an ambassador of anything that you haven't experienced firsthand. You, you can't be an ambassador of a country that you've never set foot in. And Lord God, I just pray that tonight, whatever it is that would try to get between us vertically, between our reconciliation with you, maybe it's shame, doubt, discouragement. I don't know what's holding uh, us back in our perspective. May we be reminded of the blood of Jesus Christ that brings reconciliation. Maybe we feel like we should be God's enemy tonight, but I pray you would remind us, God, of the blood of Jesus Christ that reconciles us to you. And God, I, I, if we're there, we're at peace, we're, we're all good. God, would you remind us that that's not the, the end of our mission here. God, that we're called to go out and help other men and women be reconciled to you so we can be reconciled one to the other. When we watch the news, when we get our news on Facebook, whatever it is for us, may we be reminded that we're called to be a part of the solution. And the solution isn't man to man, but God is the solution. And God, we want to be your hands. We want to be your feet. God, I just pray that tonight you would shift paradigms and shift perspectives that just continue this cycle over and over again. God, help us to shift our perspective to you. Look to you for our grace. Look to you for our help. Look to you for our hope. God, so we can never look down on the people around us, God. 
We worship you tonight, though. Jesus, we thank you that you gave your blood on the cross so that you could be the common denominator and be the solution, God. We look to you tonight. Be that in our hearts. And God, challenge us to be your hands and feet as you're the solution around us. In Jesus' name, we worship you.